Welcome to the Bazaar, your weekly one-stop shop for everything true crime, paranormal, and, well, bizarre. I'm Bridget, and I'll be in charge of walking you through our trip this week. If it's your first time here, which for all of you it is, because this is the first episode, uh, I will be attending ASU online in the fall through Starbucks, where I have the privilege of being a barista, and I'll be studying forensic psychology, hence the interest in this. Alright, let's hop right into our first episode of the Bazaar. You couldn't tell by that incredibly creepy and historically inaccurate, dare I say, child's rhyme, we're going to be starting this podcast off with Lizzie Borden. I wanted to start the show off with something pretty widely known, but not as widely known as like Ted Bundy and the Golden State Killer, which is why I decided on Lizzie Borden. Um, I feel like her case is pretty widely known in general, especially because of that fucking weird ass rhyme that just played. But the details are kind of buried and everyone seems to have like a warped perspective of what actually happened, but hopefully this will clear some stuff up for you. So Elizabeth Andrew Borden was born July 19th, 1860 to a Sarah Anthony Borden and Andrew Jackson Borden. She had an older sister, Emma Lenora Borden, who I believe was like 9 or 10 years older than her. So Sarah Borden actually died in 1863 when Lizzie was only 3 years old. And Andrew wasted no time moving on. He remarried two years later to an Abby Durfee Gray. So Andrew was not a wealthy kid growing up. His family wasn't rich, uh, but he did work his way up to it. He was a furniture and casket seller. He developed property, owned commercial property, and then he was a director of Textile Mills, the president of Union Savings Bank, and this is interesting, the director of Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. However wealthy he may have become, he was incredibly frugal with his money. The house actually didn't have plumbing or electricity, which even though it was the 1890s, this stuff was common for wealthy people, and Andrew definitely was one of them. Lizzie was not particularly close with either parent, but I know there was especially some tension with Abby, who she referred to as Mrs. Borden, and never actually by mom or even like stepmom or any version of mom. It was just Mrs. Borden or Abby. Um, She believed that the marriage to her dad was for money, which it may have been, but like we said, he was pretty frugal, so I doubt he was going to be giving his wife in the 1890s an allowance. Uh, Lizzie grew up with a religious upbringing. She actually attended Central Congregational Church. There's not a whole lot to learn about her childhood, but she did teach Sunday school in her later years to children of immigrants. She was a secretary treasurer of the Christian Endeavor Society, and she was a part of multiple contemporary groups, including Women's Christian Temperance Union and Ladies Fruit and Flower Mission. All right, we're going to dive right into the year of the murders, which was 1892. Both sisters still lived at home. Despite Lizzie being 32 and Emma being somewhere around 41, uh, neither sister showed an interest in marriage, which honestly, I don't blame them. It was the 1890s. I wouldn't be particularly interested either. Uh, so at th- living in the house at this time was Andrew, the father, Abby, the stepmother, Lizzie, Emma, and a live-in maid, Bridget, quote, Maggie Sullivan. She was deemed Maggie by the Borden family, 
Uh, I saw several different reasons for this, one of them being it was a derogatory name for Irish immigrants at the time, and another being that it was the name of a former maid and that they just called her that. Maggie later reported that she wasn't bothered by this nickname, and because my name is Bridget, I'm just going to use that because I don't really want to be known as the person in this story. Fun fact, Maggie was actually deeply unhappy working with the Bordens. She had tried to quit on several occasions, to which Abby raised her wage and begged her to stay. So, I'd be really interested in hearing what made the Borden family so miserable, besides the obvious. Alright, so early in 1892, there was a lot of tension in the Borden family. Uh, Andrew was not a super popular man, as he was super wealthy and incredibly selfish with it. There was also family tension regarding real estate and the finances being distributed to Abby's family. Um, I know, you know, the Borden sisters were a little unhappy with this, given that they still lived at home and their father definitely could have given them a place to stay. So, actually, at this time, they convinced their father to sell them their childhood home where they had lived with Sarah for a dollar. And then weeks later, they sold it back for, I'm not sure of the exact price, but a significant sum of money. So, early on in 1892, there was a daytime robbery at the Borden house. Only cash and jewelry was taken, not that there would have been, like, TVs or anything to take. Uh, Emma, Lizzie, and Maggie were home at the time, and Lizzie was deemed the prime suspect because she had been caught shoplifting before. Not sure how she could rob her own home, but, you know. Uh, two other barn break-ins were also mentioned by Lizzie later on. In the summertime months, it was like late May or early June of that year, Andrew was caught killing pigeons in the backyard with a hatchet, which is pretty gruesome foreshadowing given the later events. He reported wanting to prevent neighborhood kids from hunting them. Lizzie didn't take this very well. She had built and maintained a roost for them in the barn. This event is actually hearsay and was never 100% confirmed, but many believe that it led to the tension that eventually may have led Lizzie to commit the murders. Then in late July 1892, which was just a few weeks before murders, this is when the house incident occurred and the sisters basically finessed their dad. Around the same time, the Bordens got into a huge argument about surprise finances and real estate. This resulted in the Borden sisters staying in New Bedford for about a week. They returned back to Fall River a week before the murders, but Lizzie actually stayed out of the house for an additional four days in a local rooming house. This family really can't catch a break this week, and it only gets worse, but when they first return, the family gets severely ill with a stomach sickness. Abby's actually incredibly sus, and she goes to a physician and claims that she feels she has been poisoned. The doctor really doesn't believe this. Uh, so they go home. They're fine-ish. And it is later confirmed that it was food poisoning. So Abby was a little dramatic, but I don't blame her because clearly she did have something to be worried about. Days later, it is revealed that Lizzie had attempted to purchase poison from Eli Bentz at the town's local drugstore, but this was never connected to the murders or the food poisoning. All right, we got another character coming in here. We got John Morse, who was the maternal uncle to the sisters. So this was Sarah's brother. Uh, so he wasn't inherently connected to the family anymore, given that his sister had passed, but he stuck around. On August 3rd, which was just one day before the murders, John, who was a stern businessman and butcher, interesting combination, came for a somewhat unexpected visit. He was relatively distant from the family, but I did read that he stayed in contact with Emma and not with Lizzie, which is interesting. Uh, he had been loosely invited via letter by Andrew to discuss business matters because clearly that was all Andrew cared about. I can't say that. I didn't know the guy. 
But anyways, he arrived with no luggage and only the clothes on his back. That same night, Lizzie visited her friend Alice, who was also a Fall River resident. She had lived there for 19 years and was neighbors with the Bordens for 12 years following her father's death. She was closer with Emma given their closer age proximity, but she was Lizzie's confidant that night. Lizzie came to Alice concerned about her father's behavior, which was erratic and just overall rude. Uh, She opened up about her fear and paranoia regarding her family. As it seems, Andrew was not a very well-liked man, and she suspected poison and break-ins connected to Andrew. So Lizzie was basically shitting herself. We don't know whether this was a cover-up, possibly, or if she genuinely was concerned, or really what was going through her mind that night. Lizzie also reportedly told Alice that she had seen suspicious people walking around the house and barn, but as far as I read, nothing was ever looked into or found regarding this information. So assumedly, Lizzie went home that night, tucked herself into bed, and that brings us to August 4th, 1892. This was the day of the murders, and a lot of shit happened really fast, so just bear with me on this one. So, the family woke up around 7 a.m. and had breakfast together. So, at this time, we have Lizzie, Emma, Andrew, Abby, Maggie, and then John Morse, good old Uncle Johnny, there to visit Andrew. Um, After breakfast, John and Andrew chatted in the living room for about an hour, most likely about business, which obviously was a very touchy subject for the Bordens at the moment, possibly even for John, who was witnessing this new woman get all of the belongings that once would have been Sarah's. Abby began her chores, including ones that normally belong to the sisters, and then Maggie goes to the backyard and yaks, presumably still sick. At 8.48 a.m., Uncle Johnny left for a morning on the town and planned to return for lunch around noon. About 10 minutes later, Andrew left for his peaceful morning stroll. Sometime after that, between 9 and 10.30 a.m., Maggie was cleaning the upstairs windows and Abby went upstairs to clean the guest room, which was Lizzie's chore, but Lazy Lizzie was slacking. At this time, the killer attacked Abby head-on, causing a cut behind Abby's ear, which then led her to fall, hit her face, and get contusions on her nose and forehead. She was then struck 17 more times in the back of the head, resulting in her death. Between 10.30 and 11 a.m., Andrew returns home from his walk and his key gets jammed in the door. Maggie lets him in and reports hearing a laugh from upstairs, where, unbeknownst to her, Abby's already dead. The stairs were directly behind her, so whoever was watching and laughing must have been waiting for Andrew's arrival. Lizzie then tells Andrew that Abby left the house to visit a sick friend after receiving a telegram sending for her. Lizzie then claims to have helped Andrew out of his brisk morning stroll boots and into his slippers. Once Andrew is snoozing, Lizzie encourages Maggie to go shop the sales in the town, which she declines to rest in her bedroom, clearly still not feeling too hot after that sickness. Around 11 a.m., Andrew faces his demise. He is struck 10 to 11 times with a hatchet, likely while still sleeping due to his eye being split completely in two. He was wearing his peaceful stroll boots, not his slippers, at the time of his death. 15 to 30 minutes later, Lizzie calls, Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. I personally find this a really interesting choice of words, but I wasn't alive in 1892, so maybe it was completely normal. She sent Maggie first for a doctor and then for Alice Russell. The blood was still pouring from Andrew's wounds, indicating a recent attack. At this time, the doctor came and ruled both parents dead, obviously, and suggested that Andrew had died around 11.15. At this time, the police are finally called. So the police arrive and they're like, yeah, somebody obviously killed these people. 
The doctors actually performed the postmortem exam on the dining room table, and let me tell you, I know for a fact that Maggie was pissed about this, knowing damn well she was gonna have to clean that up. Anyways, their stomachs were extracted and searched for poison from the previous days, and the milk in the house was also tested, but it was all clean. So, sorry, Abby, but you were wrong. While this is occurring, Lizzie is being interrogated by Deputy Marshal Fleet. Uh, Deputy Fleet reported that Lizzie was detached and kept emphasizing stepmother when he referred to Abby as her mother. The police did not like Lizzie or her attitude, but honestly, if she didn't do it, her parents just died. Give her a break. Within the first few hours of the police being called, a Portuguese immigrant was arrested for the murders and was ultimately let go because they could not prove that he had any connection to the murders, and he didn't. Alice Russell, their friend from down the street, actually stayed the night that night. I really don't know how she did that, and I also don't know how they ate that night because the entire house, especially the dining room table, was a bloodbath. Morse was actually rumored to have slept in the guest room that Abby was murdered in. Uh, this was later disputed, and people claimed he slept in the attic guest room, but I still thought that was a really interesting tidbit. Stationed officers reported to have seen Alice and Lizzie go to the basement at some point in the night, and then later on, Lizzie returned alone. People said she may have been handling her menstrual rags, but others thought she may have been tending to the murder weapon. The next day, Uncle John left the house, maybe to get a new table or some takeout or you know, something pleasant, and he was mobbed by people with questions about the murders. He actually needed a police escort back to the house. On August 6th, two days after the murders, the funeral for Mr. and Mrs. Borden was held in their home. On this same day, an editorial criticized police for their inaction and failure to arrest a potential suspect that actually had any evidence against them. And a more thorough search was then performed in the home, including clothes and the suspected murder weapon, which was an axe head found in the basement. Police speculated that it had been removed from the handle due to the handle being covered in blood. It was also reportedly placed in a manner to attempt to make it look like it had been sitting untouched for a while, but it was clear that it had been recently removed and used for something. On August 7th, Alice and Emma witnessed Lizzie burning a dress in the kitchen. Lizzie claimed that it was covered in wet paint that she had gotten on it when she brushed up against a wall. Alice and Emma were incredibly distraught about this, especially Alice. This may have been a fluke incident as Lizzie later turned in the dress that she reported wearing on the day of the murders and only a small blood sample was found, which was once again attributed to Lizzie's menstrual cycle. On August 8th, Lizzie goes to an inquest hearing. Her testimony was incredibly erratic, and she refused to answer most questions, even ones that would benefit her. The questions that she did answer had very contradictory answers. She reported reading a magazine when Andrew came home versus ironing in the kitchen versus coming down the stairs when he came home. She claimed to have put on Andrew's slippers when he came home, but the crime scene photos and his body showed him wearing boots. Her physician attributed this behavior to a dosage of morphine that he had prescribed her to calm her nerves post-murder, which honestly is completely understandable. On August 11th, police determined that they had enough evidence against Lizzie to serve her with a warrant of arrest. I'm sure this was also influenced by heavy pressure from the community, given that no one had been arrested for these horrendous murders. So Lizzie was jailed at this time. Articles reported a solid demeanor and that she, quote, bit her lips, flushed, and bent towards Attorney Adams. This event got significant press coverage and was even covered in the Boston Globe. Lizzie spent the next nine months in jail. It was reportedly at this time that her friends and family members began to actually question her innocence and started to see the possibility of it being her. 
On June 1st of 1893, while Lizzie was still awaiting trial, a Bertha Manchester, another Fall River resident, was murdered with an axe with strange similarities to the boarding case. However, a year later, Hosea Correa de Mello was convicted and was proven to be nowhere near Fall River during the Borden murders. Sorry, Lizzie. Four days later, on June 5th, the trial finally opened. The prosecuting attorneys were Hosea M. Knowlton and William H. Moody, who was a future U.S. Supreme Court justice. The defending attorneys were Andre V. Jennings, Melvin O. Adams, who Lizzie was reportedly, you know, a little flushed for, and former Massachusetts Governor George D. Robinson. The skulls of the parents were shown as evidence in the courtroom, which actually made Lizzie faint. After 15 days of presenting evidence and intense deliberation between the jury, Lizzie was ruled not guilty and sent back home. She claimed to be, quote, the happiest woman in the world. However, there was still the court of public opinion, which had already decided that Lizzie was responsible for these murders. Whether that was a scapegoat or not, they did not like Lizzie very much. That about sums up the events of the actual murder and trial, so now we're going to get into some theories. Uh, so obviously, it was never proven that Lizzie committed the murders, though like I said, she remained the prime suspect in the public eye and even in the police eye, despite struggling to believe that someone of her class and faith could commit a crime like this. Many people also wrestled with the fact that even if she had committed the murders, what was her motive? And many people felt that there was at least one other person who was aware of who did it and why they did it. For these first few theories that we're going to discuss, we are going to assume that Lizzie committed the murders, and then we'll get into some other suspects. Honestly, if Lizzie did do it, in my opinion, it was probably for a mix of reasons and can't be a, like, token to just one. Uh, but we're just going to address all of them, and you guys can decide what mix you think drove Lizzie to lose her fucking mind. I honestly feel like a big part of Lizzie's suspicious nature was just that she couldn't get her shit straight. Like, I feel like she could have avoided a lot of it if she just, like, gathered herself for a second. But my parents weren't murdered with a hatchet, so I really can't speak on the shock value afterwards, I guess. But I don't know. So first, and probably the most obvious and widely believed, is that Lizzie committed the murders due to family tension and financial reasons. The pigeon incident was rumored to be the first crack in the glass, but we don't even know if that actually happened, so who knows. Um, if she did have any mental tribulations that resulted in the murders or, like, contributed at all, they wouldn't have really been identified and definitely not treated in the 1890s. I'm not saying that there's a, like, definitive correlation between mental illness and murdering people, but if that was something that Lizzie was suffering from, we don't really have a way of knowing that, and they definitely wouldn't have had a way to treat it. As we know and have heard on several occasions, she did not claim Abby as her mother and was not too fond of her in general and also believed that she was using her father. She also reported being dissatisfied with her dad's behavior. And then there was that lovely house incident, which clearly showed that stakes were high for the Bordens. It is suspected that the visit with John could have further instigated Lizzie's anger towards the family if she overheard any business conversations that she wasn't too fond of. Maggie also reported that the family rarely ate together, further indicating, you know, some not-so-ideal circumstances in the house. The next two Lizzie murderous theories are a bit less detailed than the first and last theory that we'll cover, but I still feel like they're worth mentioning. One theory claimed that Lizzie suffered from physical and sexual abuse at her father's hands. There was no substantial proof of this, but it was rarely discussed in 1892. People didn't really talk about incest, sexual abuse, or women's rights at all. 
Even if there was a suspicion, collecting evidence and actually proving it would have been almost impossible, especially given Andrew's importance and power and, like, all the shit he had going for him, technically, even though he ended up being murdered with a hatchet. Several newspapers actually hinted at this possibility of Lizzie being abused by her father, but it never really took reign, and even if it had, like I said, probably wouldn't have gone anywhere in terms of proving it. Another theory stated that Lizzie was suffering from fugue, which I'm not gonna lie, I had to look up not only what this word meant, but how to pronounce it. So if you're like me and have never heard this word before, ever, even as someone who's incredibly interested in psychology, this means uh, memory loss and like a altered state of her identity. So basically like just a dissociated state where she may not have been aware of reality or her doings. This probably was not considered at the time. Psychology wasn't exactly understood to the extent that it is today. Uh, this is totally a possible theory, but like I said with some of the other theories and this one, there really weren't the resources to prove this or even to suggest it. People really didn't have a grip on this sort of thing yet. This last theory about Lizzie is super intricate, and we're actually going to touch back on this later on when we talk about what lovely Lizzie got up to after she was acquitted. Um, a lot of people that hear about Lizzie Borden today just believe this to be fact because of the sole popularity of this story. A lot of people don't even realize that it's just speculation and they just assume that this was what was going through Lizzie's head. So this theory says that Lizzie was a lesbian and killed her parents because they discovered her sexuality. More specifically, they believe that Lizzie was in a relationship with Maggie, the housekeeper, and Abby discovered this relationship and reacted with pure disgust because keep in mind it was 1892 so it was then speculated that lizzie retaliated in an absolute rage which ended with her killing her stepmother so then it is believed that lizzie may have confessed to andrew when he came home who not only reacted with disgust but absolute like what the fuck energy because like she just murdered abby so then you know that would have led to andrew suffering the same fate uh, sexuality was not a huge topic at this time. Whether it was correlated to murders or not, people were just assumed to be straight and nothing else was really heard of. And if it was, it was incredibly frowned upon and just decided upon that it was wrong. Um, so it was probably never discussed in the, mur in the newspapers at the time that this could have had any correlation to the murders. Uh, there was a rumor later on about Lizzie's sexuality, even back in that time. Uh, but I don't think it was ever connected to the murders, in theory, until recently. Ed McBain, a true crime writer, actually proposed this theory in his book, and there was a take on it in a later movie called Lizzie. This movie discussed her sexuality as a response to trauma and indicated going through a phase, as well as a false connection between sexuality and deviance or dark urges. For this, these reasons and many others, this theory has faced some criticism. It is possible that this theory emerged for entertainment purposes alone and that the story just kind of morphed to fit modern day tropes of different is bad and an angsty character driven to extreme lengths because of their differences. These tropes seem to be familiar to us and harmful to many individuals, especially when correlated to murders of this brutality level. Um, I do think it may have been possible that Lizzie was a lesbian possibly in a relationship with Maggie, I don't know. However, there was further speculation, rumors, and, you know, suggestive ideas later on about Lizzie, which we will get into. However, I don't really think it was connected to the murders. Like, I think she could have been a lesbian, but I 
don't think that's why she killed her parents, but that's just me. So even though Lizzie was the only convicted suspect, there were others that were kind of sus at the time and in hindsight. John Morse was considered a suspect for some time because of the strange arrival time. Uh, he didn't frequent the Borden home a lot, especially after Sarah's death. And even though he was like loosely invited by Andrew, they had never set a date for his arrival. So he kind of just pulled up one day and was like, hey, I'm here. And he didn't have any luggage. He actually wore the suit on his back for two days following the murders, which when you think about it, could have been because he didn't expect to stay that long, you know, didn't uh, suspect his, what would that be, in-laws to just randomly get murdered one day in August. But I don't know. I think the guy's a little sus. It's also possible that his arrival just fueled Lizzie, but that would go back to the Lizzie theories, and I think we should give that poor girl a rest. I also think it's interesting that he was rumored to have slept in the room where the murders occurred, though that could have just emerged from trying to frame the poor guy. Uh, police also said he had a, quote, absurdly perfect and overly detailed alibi. I'm pretty sure he said he was in the town buying oxen and then visiting his niece, but I'm not sure if they ever followed up with the niece or anyone in town to confirm whether or not that was true. Emma, the older Borden sister, was also a suspect, but very loosely. I couldn't find any significant motives other than any that she would have shared with Lizzie, like family tension, money, you know. I didn't find this in writing, but from reading between the lines, it kind of seems like she was the more agreeable, pleasant, less problematic of the sisters. It seems like she just kind of vibed, but that could be because I was researching Lizzie and not really diving into Emma Borden. Despite her alibi in Fairhaven, which was 15 miles from Fall River, Frank Spearing, another true crime writer, discussed the possibility in his book that she may have returned home, committed the murders, then gone back to receive the telegram informing her of the murders. There isn't really any substantial proof of this, but it's still worth mentioning because for all we know, Emma could have done it and then let Lizzie take the fall for it. Poor Maggie was also looked into briefly, as she had tried to quit working for the Bordens, like I said, and Abby really did not want her to go. So that could have pissed her off, I don't know. There was also speculation that she was retaliating for having to clean the windows on what was considered an abnormally hot day, and she was still recovering from the mystery illness, as we know, because she retreated to the backyard to yak. Uh, this theory seems a little bit far-fetched to me, and as far as I could tell, she didn't seem like a very violent person. She couldn't even stand up for herself and quit her job when she tried, so I really, I don't know, unless she just snapped and was like, fuck you, I'm done working for you. No more house to clean, but I don't know, unless she pulled off the most seamless murder in history and was just never really considered and she just lived the rest of her life as a murderous maid who never had to face the consequences of her actions and also didn't have to work for the Bordens anymore. Going back to the Lizzie and Maggie romantically involved theory, that could have been a potential motive for Maggie as well. Perhaps they were even, like, in cahoots about it. Um, but there really wasn't substantial evidence to prove that they were romantically involved or that Maggie gave a shit about Lizzie or any of the Bordens, so I really can't say for sure. This last one is pretty interesting, even though it was eventually disputed. I'm fairly certain this was not brought up at all during the time, and I think it just popped up kind of through research in more recent times, because this case is infamous and still around, obviously, because we're here talking about it. Um, I feel like if it had come up at the time, it would have been mentioned in the trial at some point, which it wasn't from what I saw. 
So there was an idea proposed that a William Borden, who was believed to be Andrew Borden's son from another partner, had tried and failed to extort money from Andrew. Yeah, I know. It's always, like, the crazy kid that just comes out of the woodwork. So a Leonardo Ribello, who I believe was another true crime writer, did extensive research and proved that he was not, in fact, Andrew's son. Still interesting. Thought it was worth mentioning, but probably wasn't William Borden. So honestly, I don't know. I really don't know which theory I'm leaning the most towards. I don't know if it's just, like, the feminist in me, but, like, I really do empathize with, like, the wrongly accused woman who, like, suffered the rest of her life with, like, the public opinion. But I also think John was really sus. Like, just showing up randomly and with no luggage. I don't know, just... I think it definitely could have been him, but I also see how it could be Lizzie. I wouldn't find it hard to believe that Lizzie was a lesbian, especially with the little tidbits we'll talk about later, but I struggle to see the correlation between that and murdering her parents, so if she did do it, I really don't think it was connected to her sexuality, regardless of what her sexuality was. Um, I don't know, like, it was the 1890s, but there had to have been a better way to go about stuff like that. Even though I don't want to think this, I think it's most feasible that Lizzie committed the murders. Like I said, for a mix of reasons, the finances, emotional tension, possibly with a fugue, or did I say that right? I still don't even know. Um, there could have been some underlying mental issues that would obviously have been extremely neglected at the time. But it's just insane to me to think that this, like, small, like, never married, just, like, like you know, low-key woman had the strength, emotionally and physically, to murder her parents with an axe. Like, it's, dare I say, quite bizarre. I went axe-sewing once and had a hell of a time, but I'm also 5'1 and, like, 95 pounds, so that could have, that could definitely done it. What really stumps me, too, is Lizzie's visit to Alice the night before the murders. Like, I can't decide if she did that in kind of, like, a preventative measure to cover her ass and be like, oh, it couldn't have been me because, listen, Alice knows I stopped at her house or... I don't know, or if she really was concerned, and I think the business relationship between John and Andrew is really interesting, and John definitely could have been pissed off, but I don't know how valid the luggage information is, because like I said, he didn't know. Like, maybe he was just planning on going back home that night. I, who knows? I don't know. Let me just say, I have been thinking about this case non-stop since I started researching it, and it's driving me crazier than other un unsolved cases, because we will literally never know. Like, this happened so long ago that there is no new evidence coming. The person who did it is not still alive. Like, we will never know. On that note, enough with the theories because I'm getting frustrated and driving myself insane. So, instead, we are going to talk about what Lizzie and the others did after the murder trial was over and Lizzie was a free woman. Uh, so, Maggie actually found other employment, which she was probably relieved about given that she tried to escape. And she eventually married a man, which you know, poke some holes in the Maggie and Lizzie theory, but maybe not because it was the 1890s and maybe she was just trying to not get belittled by people. Who knows? Emma and Lizzie moves into another house down the street from the murder house because, you know, why leave Fall River when everyone hates you and everyone has decided you're a murderer? Lizzie called this house, quote, Maplecroft. It had live-in maids, but not Maggie housekeepers, and a coachman. I don't even know what that is. I really don't. She changed her name to Lizbeth A. Borden, and clearly nobody knew that it was her. 
Uh, she was still hated in Fall River society. She added to her rap sheet later on in 1897 when she was accused of shoplifting in Providence, Rhode Island. Lizzie girl, just keep it low-key, please. At this time, Lizzie became very close friends with an actress named Nance O'Neill, and she happened to be an out-and-proud lesbian. So for the first time, rumors about Lizzie's sexuality began to swirl because, you know, if Nance is out and proud and they're hanging out, then it just really made it fit the bill back then. Uh, none of us can confidently speak on Lizzie's sexuality. However, I know that Emma did not approve of Lizzie's friendship with Nance. Ultimately, Lizzie and Emma ended up completely falling off because of it. There was one occasion where Lizzie wanted to throw a party for Nance and Emma was just so disgruntled about it and ended up moving out and never speaking to her sister again. I was wondering if there was like any other truth that came to light at this time, like maybe connected to the murders or if Emma was really just that homophobic. I don't know. But either way, this is really what makes me wonder about Lizzie's sexuality, but at the same time, I still don't think it was correlated to the murders, and even though there were rumors about Lizzie being a lesbian, no one back then connected it to the murders as far as I know. And we could spend all day talking about Lizzie's sexuality, but at the end of the day, we still won't know. I just thought it was really interesting and had to put it in there. Was she a lesbian? Maybe. Was it connected to the murders? Maybe. Probably not. We'll never know, but... Poor Emma and Lizzie never spoke again, so whether that was just because Nance was really fucking annoying to Emma or there was more to it, I don't know. So the Borden sisters kept trekking on separately. Lizzie spent the last year of her life sick after having her gallbladder removed. She eventually died of pneumonia on June 1st, 1927 in, you guessed it, Fall River. Interesting tidbit that I just noticed as I'm recording this, June 1st was also the day that Bertha Manchester was murdered, so they died on the same day, just many years apart. The funeral details were kept private, and very few people attended. I'm pretty sure Emma didn't either. Lizzie was worth over $250,000 when she died, which is equivalent to around $8 million today which is insane. Did she work? I don't think she worked. She did own a house, several office buildings, shares and utilities, two cars, and hella jewelry. Interestingly enough, she left money to Fall River Animal Rescue League, maybe in honor of those pigeons that her father beheaded, money for care of her father's grave, which I find very interesting because if she was just trying to put up a front that she didn't commit the murders, like, she's literally dead. There's no reason to do that, so kind of speaks to something there. Uh, she left money for her closest friend and cousins, and then smaller but still large amounts for other friends and cousins. Uh, varying amounts, but a lot of money. Nine days after Lizzie's death, Emma died from chronic nephritis? Nef nephritis? I should have looked that one up too. In Newmarket, New Hampshire, where she had resided for the past four years for both health reasons and avoidance of publicity following the publication of another Borden family murder book. The sisters were buried side by side on the family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. Also buried there was Abby, Andrew, Sarah, and Alice, which was a baby sister who had died as an infant. Is an infant. We're going to try that whole statement again. The sisters were buried side by side on the family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. They were buried with Abby, Andrew, Sarah, and Alice, who was a sister that had passed away as an infant. Um, I find this all really interesting because can you imagine if Lizzie or Emma or, or whoever did do it and they're just all chilling there together? Also, Lizzie and Emma literally hadn't spoken for years and years and years and then they die, like, consecutively and are reunited. I don't know. The whole thing is just wacky, man. 
Following the Borden trial, Alice Russell went on to become the sewing supervisor for Fall River School Department. It is believed, though, that she never talked to Lizzie again. Uh, she did die in 1941. Maggie found other employment after the murders and married a man, like I said, that she met in Montana while working. Um, on her deathbed in 1948, she confessed to her sister that she had changed her testimony to protect Borden. So, I retract my earlier statement about not giving a shit about the Bordens. Clearly, there was some sort of friendship, care, something there because she was protecting Lizzie, but we may never know how or why or what Lizzie actually did and what Maggie knew about it. So, obviously, this case was incredibly popular at the time due to the sheer brutality of it and just that it was never solved and the fact that, like, this Christian woman was the main suspect. Um, it is still pretty relevant in today's society of true crime. And I see why. Like, I was completely immersed in this case while trying to research and just grasping at straws for explanations because it really just baffles me. It really was a landmark trial at the time, and in modern days, it's been compared to O.J. Simpson due to the sheer publicity of it and the interest in the American legal system. At the time, apparently, people were incredibly invested in how the trial was being handled between evidence and juries and all of that good jazz. It was also memorialized through a creepy-ass nursery rhyme that I played at the beginning of this episode. So, that was the first verse, which is incredibly popular. It states, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Incredibly inaccurate. It is her stepmother, not her mother, and the numbers are an incredible reach. However, there is a second verse that is significantly less known and I tried to find like an audio recording of it on YouTube and it just does not exist and when I looked up the second verse I only found it on one source so it says Andrew Borden now is dead Lizzie hit him on the head up in heaven he will sing on the gallows she will swing so apparently this rhyme was like a jump rope song like kids would sing this song at the playground I don't know kind of whack but either way the recording I found is scary as shit so obviously, like I gathered from all the true crime writers that I've been mentioning throughout this, um, people are still trying to unravel this case, still writing books about it, still invested in it like I was, and I totally see why. Like I could probably sit here and do another episode on just my theories and my thoughts on it. There were also a bunch of fiction books created, some movies created, documentaries, you know, fiction, nonfiction, all sorts of media. It's out there about Lizzie Borden. It's also a sort of landmark character, like the crazy axe-wielding single woman that just, like, loses her fucking mind and goes bonkers and kills everyone. It's a source of ins inspiration for a lot of modern entertainment. When I was researching, it was bothering me because I knew that I recognized this story from somewhere other than Lizzie Borden because obviously I'd heard of her before. And it was actually from American Horror Story Asylum, and it just, like, came to me one day when I realized it is the backstory of one of the characters in that season. The Borden House actually operated as a bed and breakfast for many years with 1890s styling and the house was like preserved with its, I don't want to say original decorations because like we discussed, it was kind of quite a gory scene in there, but it was decorated pretty identically, pretty similar to how it was back then. The house has been sold to an entrepreneur named Lance Zal. He owns a company called U.S. Ghost Adventures. He plans to host hatchet-throwing contests, murder mystery events, and paranormal teams going through the house. Now, this was a really controversial move. A lot of people are worried that the history preserved in that house will, you know, falter. 
And I'm a little disappointed too. I really would have loved to stay in the bed and breakfast, but I guess we'll see what he plans to do with it. Maplecroft, the house that Lizzie and Emma lived in after her acquittal, has recently gone up for sale and it is just down the block of the murder house turned bed and breakfast turned, I don't know, fucking attraction. But I think that's really interesting, but it's probably like hella expensive. The axe head that was used as evidence in the trial is preserved at Fall River Historical Society, and obviously the story itself is preserved in so many stories, podcasts, books, I could go on. It's just, it's really, really popular. I really thought it was the perfect topic for the first episode, because like we said, it's not as popular as, like, Ted Bundy, and everyone seems to know, like, you know, what Ted Bundy did and what happened to him, but people just know Lizzie Borden as, like, a fucking creepy-ass rhyme, and, you know, she killed her parents with an axe, but the actual details are pretty interesting, and there are so many theories to delve into. That about covers Lizzie Borden. Thank you all so much for listening to this first episode of The Bazaar. I had an absolute blast talking about the Bordens, and I definitely feel like I loosened up halfway through, and I'm a little bit more comfortable with this whole podcast thing. Um, I had a great time. It's really gonna fucking bother me for a long time that I don't know what happened in the Borden case, but there will be many more for us to unravel in the future. Thank you all so much. I hope you had an equally equally great time listening. I will see you guys next week at the Bazaar, your one-stop shop for everything spooky. See ya. That was cool. I'm sorry. I just played that and even my dog perked up. That is fucking whack. I'm sorry.